there is this sort of widespread expectation that, well, go to the audiologist, they're going to fit me with hearing aids, and then that's going to be it, because that was my neighbor's experience, that was my mother or father's experience, or my friend's experience. And I think making it really clear that we offer more than, than, than just the device fitting, that we are more than just fitters of devices, that we are highly trained people with expertise in providing holistic hearing rehabilitation. Welcome to the Hear Me Out podcast. Thank you for tuning into episode four of the show. Today we're joined by special guest Elizabeth Convery. Um, Liz is a senior research audiologist at the National Acoustics Labs and her work focuses around self-fitting hearing aids, self-management of hearing loss and a lot of other different areas. Thank you Liz for joining us on the show. You're very welcome, it's a pleasure. Um, Also I just wanted to just congratulate you on your doctorate of audiology recently in March. Congratulations on that, really exciting. Thank you. It was probably the hardest thing I've ever done, but the best thing I've ever done. And I'm so excited to be finally finished. Wonderful. Um, awesome. I'd just like to start off by getting a bit of your story and how you got into the audiology industry and um, a bit of a journey on how you got into the role you are today. Okay. Well, I think like most of us, I got into audiology as a happy accident. (laughs) That's sort of how I run my life. I spend a lot of time mulling over small decisions like what to have for dinner or what to wear to work tomorrow. But I just jump in with both feet very impulsively when it comes to the big decisions in life. So as an undergrad, I studied linguistics and anthropology, a nice combination of my two favorite things, people and communication. And what happens when you get more than one person in a room and how do they interact and how do they communicate? So um, as I neared the end of my degree, I started thinking, well, what on earth can I do with a degree in linguistics? Mm -hmm. And a lot of my classmates were pursuing careers in speech pathology. So I spent some time volunteering at a clinic that provided speech pathology services to people with acquired uh, brain injury. And I thought, you know, this really isn't for me. And then we had an audiologist guest speaker come to our department. And I thought, yeah, this this sounds like something I could pursue. Um, And so that meant actually leaving the city where my undergraduate university was and and going further afield to to study audiology. So I chose to move to the U.S. from Canada and study audiology in California. And then toward the end of that program, of course, was thinking, well, where where am I going to be working and how am I going to find a job? And I was lucky enough to have a really excellent mentor and supervisor at my final clinical placement, which was at John Tracy Clinic in Los Angeles, a really excellent, very um, high-ranked clinic in California. And my mentor, um, Christine Gilmore Eubanks, she was very invested in helping me to find a place uh, to work after I graduated. And she would send me these job ads that came up on her professional association um, listserv back then. This was 1999, this was. And one day she sent me an ad uh, for, as a joke, and it was an ad for audiologist to work for Australian Hearing, as it was known then, to work in Darwin. And she sent me the email and she said, oh, haha, wouldn't this be, wouldn't this be a lark? <laughs> and I looked at it and I burst out laughing. I thought, whoa, that's, that's incredible. And I just, you know, put the email in the trash and yeah, continued. Yeah, yeah. And then the next day when I was there, one of our patients didn't turn up. So we had a little bit of a gap in the day. And I thought, I'm going to take another look at that email. So I fished it out of my trash, <laughs> looked at it again. And I thought, what the heck, I'm going to go for it. 
So I applied and it was an American clinic manager at the time who, that was one of the draws is that I was thinking, well, I'd be able to get my certification to then come back to North America and work if I spent some time there. And that was almost 20 years ago. And um, I'm still here. <laughs> I've never left. So I just took a chance, pulled the pin. And two weeks after I graduated with my master's in audiology, I was on the other side of the world in Darwin of all places. So moving from Los Angeles to Darwin was it's a bit of a culture shock. Quite a shock. <laughs> but uh, it's amazing. And it's just, it's just been, yeah, it's just been incredible actually, actually being here. Wow. That's yeah. quite a story, quite, quite a journey. Yeah. So, and it was one of those things where you sort of jump again, jump in with both feet, new country, new profession, um, and then doing a lot of remote Aboriginal work. So a lot of communities in the top end of the Northern Territory were part of our remit in terms of providing services. So right from the beginning, I was off doing these remote visits and there is no better way and no steeper learning curve than to start out with, with that sort of outreach work. Wow, so, you were really thrown into the deep end. <laughs> I was. It was an incredible learning experience. And then, but after a while, I thought, you know, I'm going to burn out yeah. if, I, if I continue on this path. It's too soon in my career to be, to be doing this. You need an incredible array of skills to be able to successfully do outreach work. And I did not think, I thought, in my first year of my career, I don't have those skills. So I ended up putting in for a transfer and moved down to Victoria um, in the country areas to, to work at a hearing centre there. So still with... Australian hearing, as it was known then. And then about a year into that, the uh, the job at NAL came up. And again, it was one of those things where I saw the ad come through on my email and I thought, what the heck, I'll just sort of go for it. And I did. And I got hired and I, I've been here ever since. So you asked me before we started how long I've been here. And I've, I've been here 17 years now, sort of working my way up from you know, just sort of an entry-level audiologist, collecting data, supporting other people's research projects, all the way up to a senior audiologist who now runs her own research projects, leads teams. Um, it's been an incredible journey. It really has been. Did you think you were going to go get into research when you were all the way back in linguistics? Yeah, look, it always appealed to me. Um, doing and, and also when I was um, when I was an undergraduate, I did do an honors year, so I did have a bit of a taste of research and enjoyed it. And then I thought, well, what can I really do in linguistics research specifically? Where is that going to take me? I thought, you know, I'd rather have something that's a little more practical, a little more real world. So that's actually quite quite a nice thing about working at now is that we do research and, you know, it's very high quality scientific research, but it's very applied. So we're always thinking about, you know, how is this going to help patients? How is this going to help audiologists or other health professionals? That's always our focus. That's always what we have sort of at the top of our minds when we're thinking about what kind of research projects should we be doing. So to me, it's this perfect marriage between being able to sort of apply that scientific rigor and to get really invested in, you know, some research questions and some new ideas, but then having a real world practical application come out of that. Wow. How, what have been ways you found that have been effective and useful to keep your eyes on kind of the end goal and connect the patients to the clinicians to the researchers and always getting the end goal to be that the patients are improved and their lives are improved and stuff like that? How do you um, carry that out through the whole chain while you're doing research? Because in anything it's very easy to get caught up in just doing your own thing and just researching and not really getting 
the end goal in mind. Yeah, look, that's a really great point, Mark, and that's probably one of our biggest obstacles in in any kind of health research is how do we translate that into actually, you know, better outcomes for patients or new clinical procedures or, or new interventions that will genuinely help people, mm. things that are going to be relevant to real clinical practice. And it is very difficult to keep that in mind. There is still a quite a big gap between people who work in research and then people who practice clinically. Yeah. So one way that we are approaching that is to take an approach called design thinking to a lot of our a lot of our work and design thinking you spend a lot of time at the beginning actually going out and observing real people in your population of interest doing real things what are their day-to-day -day lives like and then trying to find out what are the problems they encounter what kind of needs do they have and then thinking about how you can apply your knowledge or create a study or a research question around that to address that so we're actually doing that right now for a project i'm leading and a number of us are now going out into different hearing centers and clinics mm. and observing what happens when a new adult client comes in, meets the audiologist for the first time, and what is that? What does that look like? And are there any hiccups in the process? Are there things that the audiologist wants to be able to do better? Are there places where they're maybe not connecting and communicating as well? And we just sit there and we can observe. And there's so much you can learn from just sort of sitting back and and, and observing what people actually do naturally. Wow. <laughs> And, and sending not just other audiologists out, but sending some of our engineering team or some of our behavioral scientists who, who aren't clinicians and may have never seen an actual audiology appointment. They can really get that very deep understanding. So that's one way. Um, really connecting with the stakeholders in your, in your research. So is this something that we're going to be developing for clinicians, for patients? If it's for patients, are they older adults? Are they children? Are they adolescents? parents of children with hearing loss, really connecting with them and finding out, well, what is it you actually want? What mm. do you want out of your hearing care service? Where are the gaps? Where are the deficiencies? And how might we be able to address that? So I think if you don't have that, you definitely run the risk of doing research that's irrelevant and that's just going to be buried in some journal somewhere and actually never gets out there into clinical practice. So that's really important, I think. Wow. And that is... And we always want to get that to the to clinical practice because then it can start improving the lives and really impacting our customers and clients yeah if yeah. it's just and, and ending at research and you're constantly doing that it's not really making much of a difference exactly and we can't stop there with just the initial observation and deciding what people want and we have to make sure that it's able to be implemented in a way that's going to be palatable to people we can't say we've come up with this wonderful new a questionnaire for audiologists to use. It's going to take you 45 minutes. No <laughs> audiologists minutes in their day for every client. So we need to work with them to figure out, well, what do you need and how do we sort of work that into your clinical workflow? Or are there requirements from, say, hearing services program that you have to do X, Y, and Z during an appointment and we can't really add things or deviate from that without risking losing funding? So mm. there's a lot practical things we need to think about and getting getting the people on board with this all along the research journey. These are all things that are going to make it much more likely that people are going to take up the results of your research and actually bring these new innovations into the clinic. Wow. Very interesting. Um, how, so you've done a lot of research into self-management of hearing loss. How has that 
how has um, the innovations in self-management, what kind of market is that filling at the moment? And what do you, what market do you think that's going to be filling um, in terms of our client base? Yeah, so the idea for doing the research into hearing loss self-management actually emerged almost um, sort of, you know, randomly out of our self-fitting work, thinking about what sorts of factors or characteristics about a person would make them more likely to be a successful self-fitter, a successful user of self-fitting hearing aids. And one of the things that came up was, are people able to self-manage their hearing loss? Not just managing the device itself, but are they are they able to use hearing rehab strategies and listening tactics and things like that, are they able to keep on top of new problems and address them sort of in a timely way? Are they managing the psychosocial effects of their hearing loss in a, in a productive and adaptive way? And there's a lot of synergy between this and how uh, chronic care is looked at sort of in, with, the, with other chronic health conditions. So self-management is a really fundamental thing in chronic care of things like diabetes, arthritis, and asthma. And they have been doing research in this space for a long time. So the idea for this is to really empower people to look after their chronic condition. For most adults who develop a hearing loss in older age, once you've got a hearing loss, you've got it for life. So you do need to manage it. We can't, we can't cure it. We can't make it go away. Absolutely. So this is something that I think is going to uh, really help people become sort of more active participants in things. It's going to contribute to, you know, better hearing aid use, better amplification device use. So that I think is really sort of the whole aim of that uh, of that research program is really helping people to just be more empowered and more um, more willing and able to take the initiative to really look after these holistic effects of their hearing loss. How have you um, seen like clinicians? use self-management of hearing loss like uh is that a normal thing that clinicians recommend look i think some of them are really tuned into that so the a really good clinician is going to be looking at the patient holistically anyway and from focus groups i've done with audiologists they are extremely keen to to incorporate some of these things that go beyond just fitting someone with a hearing aid and then letting them walk out the door So one of the barriers at the moment seems to be that audiologists are a bit not not so confident in the fact that they they don't feel they have the the necessary skill set to confidently really help people, particularly in the psychosocial area. That's not to say that all audiologists feel that way, but there is that general sense that you know we're we're skilled up quite a lot in how to fit hearing aids, how to deal with the technical side of things, but the counseling side of things is a little a little more iffy. Yeah. So the um, there's there's that sort of reluctance thinking well you know i don't really know that i can provide this this service to a high level so i might sort of just stay with the you know the, the hearing what's aid comfortable adjustment. yeah exactly. what's comfortable what's safe what i really know a lot about and you know it can be it can be a bit scary and, and you have to make yourself a little bit vulnerable when you're talking about some really significant psychosocial issues with, yeah I mean, people are going to talk about things that are very personal, uh, that make them vulnerable. And you have to be able to, it's a whole skill set in and of itself to be able to not just take that in and handle it, but also to help them be more productive based on what, that they, what they've told you, to help them go forward from that. So I think there is a little bit of a sort of, you know, people being a bit unsure about how to actually do that. Yeah. Also having the time 
there's so much that people have to do, you know, with respect to hearing aid fitting and looking after the devices and all that sort of thing that there can be this perception that dealing with the psychosocial stuff just takes a long time, time that we don't necessarily have. Um, so there are some sort of um, organizational barriers to that as well. So I think at the moment, audio some audiologists are actually doing this quite well. There's a lot of variation, and I've heard that from some of my client focus groups as well. There's a lot of variation between whether an audiologist will address those things and treat the patient holistically. Some of them do and some of them don't. There's a very wide spectrum. Okay. What I can say is that there's really no consistency across the profession for doing that. Yeah. How how do you think we can start implementing that across the sector? And how how does Audiology Australia and ACORD and stuff like that play a role in that to kind of roll out that kind of patient-centered care and approaching every single part of their life and not only the hearing loss and the pathology by itself? I think really sort of a multi-pronged approach is really necessary for that. So if we're just talking to, let's say we just spoke to currently practicing audiologists. So some of them don't necessarily have these skills that are needed because they're not things that might be taught in their course or there might not be things that are prioritized in their initial placements or during their, their first internship year. And so that's a larger problem than just an individual audiologist sort of doing this or not doing it. Um, I know some audiologists have expressed to me that they don't necessarily feel like they have the resources, uh, any sort of clinical tools or clinical assessments that tap directly into that, at least not that they're, um, that they're using on a regular basis. They're not sure where to, where to look for something of value. So there might be some ways we can look at um, what sorts of courses or, um, or additional continuing education, continuing professional development things are offered. Certainly, Audiology Australia has actually been quite good in offering things about focusing on counseling, looking at the whole patient, patient-centered care. Um, we really need to have that on all fronts. I mean, it's not enough to just attend one seminar on the topic and then expect that everyone's Yeah. Yeah. And also about uh, what patients expect when they first come into the clinic, that there is this sort of widespread expectation that, well, go to the audiologist, they're going to fit me with hearing aids, and then that's going to be it because... That was my neighbor's experience, that was my mother or father's experience, or my friend's experience. And I think making it really clear that we offer more than, than, than just the device fitting, that we are more than just fitters of devices, that we are highly trained people with expertise in providing holistic hearing rehabilitation. So I think if we have some efforts from the professional associations, individual clinicians, people who can become champions of this sort of thing, real leaders in our field, uh, educational institutions who are offering programs in audiology, we all need to sort of play a role in that. Okay, yep. Coordinating that, it sounds very simple, but of course, coordinating something like that would be would be a, a big a big challenge, a big challenge. Absolutely, because it's affecting a lot of people and a lot of organizations to try and drive and bring that change. Um, well, and that can be one of the challenges of, of any sort of research and trying to implement that is getting all the players on board. I mean, there's always a, a large number of stakeholders when it comes to any sort of clinical service. You've got individual clinicians, you've got the organizations they work for, the university programs they've come from, policymakers, government, other sorts of standards. You've got the patients themselves, lots of different people to satisfy and bring together in the mix, professional associations, lots of sorts wow. of things. It is a, it is a big, uh, complex endeavor. 
that's quite a lot of people on the chain, which all kind of need to be moving at the same time in order to bring that change overall. Exactly. I think one of the key things in in sort of convincing people to sort of get on board with this is making sure they can clearly see the value. So getting buy-in to this and being able to, I guess, sell the idea to people in a way that will benefit they can clearly see the benefit to themselves or their own organization. That's a that's a big ask. That's a difficult thing to do. Mm, and somebody has to be driving that change and driving that first wave in order for people to see that it's actually viable. Yes, definitely, definitely. How do you see the integration of e-health and m-health um, changing the amount of time we have with um, clients and what and how do you think that's going to be changing Um, how we address the psychosocial and the life outside of the clinic. Yeah, look, I think that e-health and m-health technologies have such a wonderful potential for actually increasing the amount of time we can spend on that Mm. because if clients are able to do things independently or if we can do things remotely or online, um, you know, keeping in mind that e-health isn't just about, uh, you know, a video conferencing session with, with a client like we're speaking right now, Uh, but it encompasses use of apps, things online, on the internet, um, all sorts of things, anything to do with information and communication technology. And there's so many different ways that those technologies can be exploited to help the patients actually do things in their own time, perhaps reserving face-to-face clinician client time for for exactly these things. So there is an app from GN Resound that allows clinicians to do remote fine-tuning on a fitted hearing aids. So that frees up time. The client doesn't have to come in yep. to, to have the hearing aid fine-tuned. As the clinician, you can re- you can choose to respond to that very quickly, sort of in between appointments. If it's a quick fix, you don't have to allot an entire appointment for a person to come in um, and they can make as many requests as they want. And you know, you don't have to you don't have to have someone there face to face. So that saves that saves appointment time. Those kinds of technologies allow you to do things um, quite efficiently. So when the patient is there, um, you're able to spend the time rather than fiddling around with you know their their directional microphone being width and and, and things and noise reduction algorithm strength. <laughs> you can talk to them about how their hearing loss is really affecting them in everyday life. Wow! And you can you can do those sorts of things and you can have a really nice in depth counseling session because you don't have you've taken care of everything else um, remotely. Or by the technology, and of course, there's still scope for using using these sorts of things to support psychosocial uh, development of skills to manage the hearing loss. I mean, there's there's you can do um, online oral rehabilitation programs. You can have um, you know even even message boards and and little online forums for people to talk to other people with hearing loss. Mm-hmm. All these sorts of things can play a role, and 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 I think building up building that up. And, and making that available to clients, that's something that they can do on their own. I mean, and that's, that's important. That's really at the heart of, of developing good self-management skills. The patient is the one who's driving it. The patient is the one who is initiating these self-management activities. That you, the clinician, you are there as a resource to guide them and say, look, these are the things that you have available. Now, take it and run with it. And, and I, think, I think all of these sorts of e-health and m-health technologies offer us such a wonderful opportunity to just harness that power and and help patients literally pick it up and run with it. Hmm. 
Um, I think a gap in the market is that there's not a lot of free and just widely available content around how to maintain your hearing aids and how to um, kind of keep up your hearing health and hearing health education because in other industries like um, even online sales and marketing there's a lot of online free content which is getting pushed out all the time which can help mm-hmm. people do that on by themselves and stuff like that and I think that's a really big market which um, hearing aid companies and audiologists can really start filling to really help educate the patient before they even come into the clinic so when they come into the clinic it's really an efficient use of time and they already know a bit of an understanding behind what the clinic what the consultation is going to be like and how hearing aids are going to be working yeah no i i completely agree with you because it's all it all really comes down to empowering patients and one way to do that is with knowledge and here i want to give a shout out to a great program that actually does tackle that it is free it's called c2 here mm. the letter c number two here and it was developed by our audiological science department head here at now wow who has joined us in the last few months from um, Nottingham, mm. University of Nottingham. And the, uh, there's a program that they develop for uh, new hearing aid users. Basically, videos intended to describe all the different sorts of hearing aid management skills, some communication tactics, things that a first-time hearing aid user, someone new to hearing healthcare, should know about. And they have their own dedicated website. The videos are also on YouTube. And again, it's it's free. And Wonderful. they they develop them using the technique that I that I mentioned earlier. This idea of getting stakeholders in and finding out well, how do patients really want information presented to them? Asking audiologists, what information have you found is really important for your first time hearing aid users to know about? And taking that information and and weaving that into what they ended up delivering as the final product. So that, I think, has been really fundamental to to their success. Um, So that's actually a good resource. um, And that's something, again, no one else has done this, uh, but there's certainly scope for building on that platform and and exactly doing more of what you said is making more of these resources available Mm -hmm. to people so they they can arm themselves with that knowledge and make really good informed choices. Wonderful. I'll definitely put that in the description. See you here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, check it out. <laughs> yeah, because, um, and I think there's a lot of room for maybe marketing that and just putting it on Google so that people, when they search for hearing loss, they can immediately see that and kind of get more educated on how hearing health works and all that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to move on to your work in self-fitting hearing aids. Um <laughs> In one, can you just give a quick description of what self-fitting hearing aids is and kind of who it's mainly targeting to targeted towards and all that? Yeah, absolutely. So self-fitting hearing aids differ from the traditional audiologist fit hearing aids in that they're an amplification device for which the entire fitting process is self-directed by the mm-hmm. user. So there's a number of steps involved in in setting that up. So there needs to be uh, a setup stage where the, the the person is actually adjusting the physical fit of the hearing aid, so making sure that it actually fits physically in the ear. That's pretty fundamental to everything else. So we're generally looking at something like a receiver and canal or a slim fit BTE, where they can easily change the dome size and the and the tubing the tubing length. So once that's been done, then 
there are some different approaches to this, but some hearing aids will actually have an in-situ hearing test. So the hearing aid itself will actually present pure tones um, through the same transducer okay. and coupling pathway that will be used for amplification. And then the client responds to those tones like they would to a normal audiogram. And these days, that's typically done via a smartphone app. Okay. Yeah. So they're initiating the test and they're, and they're responding to the tones on the app. And then once those thresholds have been measured, the hearing aid will then automatically apply some sort of fitting rationale to give them some initial settings. Okay. So it's basically automating a lot of the things that we would do in the clinic. So instead of an audiologist sitting there putting headphones on somebody and presenting tones, the hearing aid is doing all that automatically. And then instead of the fitting software and having to enter in their audiogram and apply the, the fitting formula, again, the hearing aid is doing that automatically. And then often the, the app will allow the person to then make some further adjustments to the settings. Okay. So they start from their initial fit and they can wear that if they, if they like it. Or they can just go out into the real world, make adjustments to perhaps overall volume or high or low frequency gain, other things depending on what the hearing aid allows. Mm -hmm. Um, some other hearing aids will allow the person to um, do, sort of do a paired comparison. So they'll, they'll sort of say, okay, here's two different gain frequency responses. Which one do you like better? And then you can tweak that based on, based on preference. Wow. So it's really about putting a lot of the things that um, we do in the clinic, yep. either making them automatic or putting them in the hands of the person who's going to be wearing the hearing aid. So that's, in a nutshell, what self-fitting hearing aids are all about. Ah, okay. Um... How does, just like on an audiology, more niche thing, um, how does that play into, like if you have a conductive or sensory neural hearing loss, if the hearing test is only getting the air conduction pathways? Mm, excellent question. And we actually did a study on exactly that topic. So it's part of a completely unrelated study one of our incidental findings, uh, and this is going back some years now, that we noticed that when we were asking people to respond to tones and noise instead of standard tones and quiet like you would with a regular hearing test, we found that people with, um, with sensory neuroses not able to do that as well. Okay. But if we had someone with a conductive hearing loss of the same degree, then they were able to do that very well because their you know, their cochlea is not affected. So the cochlear tuning, the uh, it's it's normal yes. basically. We thought, oh well, that's interesting. So they're actually same sort of degree of hearing loss, but they're performing differently based on the type of hearing loss. Okay, so like the, all the frequency selectivity and all those factors which we account for exactly. aren't getting exactly. affected. So yeah, so we found that if we had we had a, we had groups of people with normal hearing, people with conductive loss, people with sensory neural loss, we'd be able to distinguish the normal hearers from the people with either conductive or sensory neural just on a tone and quiet test, so standard pure tone audiometry, and then we'd further be able to separate the conductives from the sensory neurals via a tone and noise test. Mm. So we showed that if you do both of those tests, you can actually predict what what type of hearing loss someone has as well as measure the degree with, with quite a high degree of accuracy so you don't actually need to have bone conduction because you're, you're separating people out through these different types of air conduction tests so that was that was something that um that we actually published a paper in ear and hearing about because it was actually quite an exciting finding i thought um and it's it's a possible way to 
also overcome the limitations if you're somewhere where you don't have access to a bone conductor yes. or you don't have access to a tympanometer and you really need to know basically what type of hearing loss does this person have. So you can decide on, well, do we refer them to a GP and then on to an ENT or do we actually go ahead and fit them with hearing aids? Yep. That combination of tests is, is quick to administer and you can you can at least get yourself in the ballpark and decide what sort of referral pathway. So there's more applications than just self-fitting, but mm. it's something that could be compatible with self-fitting because everything is delivered by air conduction. Yeah. Um, how do you think that's going to be integrated into clinical practice? And do you think there was room for that to move into clinical practice? So that, I think, is more about integrating that into the manufacturer specifications for a hearing aid, I think. And that's something that hasn't been taken up, but that some manufacturers have actually shown some interest in in the past. And it's, um, yeah, it's something that I would actually really love to see in, in a self-fitting hearing aid, to be honest. Mm. So, yeah. And in terms of that, how do we then refer them if they have a conductive loss so that they can seek treatment and possibly alter that, that conductive loss? Mm. So that, that's a really important point as well, because we need to make sure that we're not just having anyone who has any sort of hearing difficulty buying a hearing aid off the internet and possibly being not a candidate or having a hearing aid be very inappropriate for them because they need medical or surgical management instead. There's actually a researcher named Sumit Dar at Northwestern University who has developed an instrument called the CEDRA, so C-E-D-R-A, and it's designed to identify and, and, and sort of filter out people who have these red flag conditions. So people who have discharging ears or they have unilateral tinnitus or they have vertigo, other things that might be an indication that more medical investigation is warranted before jumping ahead to a hearing aid. So there are, there are people who are actually looking at this. And, um, and I think it's very important that we don't want people leaping to doing doing it themselves if they haven't actually been fully checked out in terms of are there any obstacles or reasons why you shouldn't get a hearing aid or reasons why you should see a different sort of specialist first absolutely yeah and there'll be a lot of um things i think hearing aid companies can look into in the next few years as more of them get into the self-fitting hearing aid space um mm. what do you think are some of the barriers for people getting into self-fitting hearing aids or just hearing aids in general? Mm, so for, for people who would be wearing them, you mean, or, um, or many yes. just getting into the space? Yeah, for, for the people, yeah. Um, so look, there still is a, quite a bit of stigma around the idea of wearing a hearing aid. It's unfortunate that they're not people don't sort of see them like we see glasses, yeah. for example. I mean, I've been wearing glasses since I was a child, and I, I devote a lot of time every time I need new frames to picking out something <laughs> that I love. They're really cool, and I want people to notice my glasses. Um, but people don't necessarily feel that way on the whole about hearing aids, mm. which is unfortunate. And they've, they've had this reputation as being these, you know, being very large or being very medical device looking. You know, they haven't until very recently been small and cool looking and you know, looking like. And it hasn't been very common until recently to yes. wear things in our ears like AirPods or Bluetooth headsets. I mean, now you can't even get on the train or the metro without <laughs> seeing people things in their ears. It's this normal thing now. Yeah. Uh, there still is a lot of stigma. And a lot of that, I think, is really wrapped up in... Um, in the aging process. So I work mostly with older adults. So that's the population that I that I know best yeah. in audiology. And so many of them, I've had 
I've been lucky enough in, in a research context, you get to spend a lot of time with research participants. So you're not pressed for time like you are in a clinic. Mm. So there's lots of time that I've been able to spend with people just talking about their experiences. And a lot of them see hearing aids as almost this visual confirmation that they're getting older and all the negative things that go along with aging. So things like losing capacity, becoming frail, not being able to do the things that they used to do because you know they have these limitations. They are less than they used to be. And there's a lot to unpack around that. And this is another reason why I really, really strongly believe that we need to focus more of our time in the clinic on these issues. These are very real, very big issues that loom very large in the lives of people who have hearing loss, who are sort of in that demographic, they're getting older, likely their ears are not the only things that they're having difficulty with. Maybe their their eyesight is going, maybe they're having other issues, they might be using a walking stick, they might be having trouble with balance. Mm-hmm. These signs combining to make them think, well, yeah, look, I'm not able to do the things I was able to do 20, 30 years ago. And maybe, you know, if they have trouble hearing, they can, you know, they can pass it off as well. This is kind of a normal consequence of being older. And as long as I sort of try to fit in in the conversation and not really draw attention to that, no one's going to really look at me and and know that I have a hearing loss. But once the hearing aids go on, yeah, they are basically a visual manifestation of I'm older. You know, I have reduced capacity, at least in their minds. So I think it's very, it's a challenge for people to see hearing aids as something positive, as something that brings benefit, that's helping you. It's a tool to help you rather than just this big stigmatizing thing, you know, blaring out to the world that I'm, I'm not as, I'm not the person that I used to be. So this is a huge issue with our older adults. And it's something that we really need to explore that more, that on one hand, we can look at making hearing aids smaller and cooler looking, but, you know, at the end of the day, there's still hearing aids and people still have those entrenched attitudes about them. So that's one of the big barriers. Um, Cost is another, Um, you know, in Australia, we're very lucky to have the hearing services program. So providing fully subsidized or heavily subsidized hearing aids for, you know, people on a pension, veterans, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander adults over 50, um, you know, pro for kids and, and young adults up to the age of 26. But if you're not eligible for any of those programs, if you're sort of in that middle age category or you're a self-funded retiree, hearing aids can be, you know, a bit of a, a bit of an investment, especially when you start comparing them to other assistive devices like glasses. I mean, my glasses are nowhere near the cost of even an entry-level pair of aids. And also knowing that you have to then outlay that cost, you know, probably every five years or so, you know, as technology becomes obsolete or the hearing aids wear out or they stop working and can't be repaired anymore. So that's a substantial chunk of money. And I read something um, not too long ago suggesting that we um, hearing aids are the probably the third largest single purchase after your house and your car. And in terms of how much they cost or how much they can cost. I mean, when you think about it like that, I mean, that's, that's a huge investment for something that many people are very ambivalent about. So cost plays a role, I think, as well. So those are probably the two biggest, those are probably the two biggest obstacles as I see it. Wow. Yeah, I never realized that that's, that that is the third largest investment. And it's quite a significant amount of money, especially for... 
people who don't even see that they have an issue with hearing. That's right. That's right. So, yeah. Mm. Um, in your paper about self-fitting hearing aids, you say that, um, quote, with an optimized implementation and support structure, self-fitting hearing aids will be a more viable option. Um, how do you envision that developing over the next few years and what kind of optimized implementation and support structures do you see will help um, the adoption of hearing aids for more people? Mm, yeah, excellent question. So one of the, the recurring findings of our series of self-fitting studies was that only a minority of people were able to do the self-fitting task, whatever it was, setting up just setting up the the physical components or actually doing the entire procedure. Only a minority of people were able to do that completely independently. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. So for the most part, the majority of people who were successful in the end at, at getting their hearing aids all set up needed some sort of help whether it was just a little bit of, you know, checking like, yep, you've done that right, you're fine, or really sort of, you know, in-depth help on every step. And we found that that with every study that we've done with, with some different implementations of hearing aids, that the task is actually quite challenging mm. and you do need to have on-demand support. The most recent study we did uh, looking at a commercially available self-fitting hearing aid, we had clinical assistants who were trained to specifically help people with the self-fitting task and help them troubleshoot. That they they were you know called more often than they than not by people who were in the in the middle of setting it up, and we couldn't always predict where people were going to have trouble. It wasn't like there was one particular step that tripped everybody up, or one bit was was easier than another bit. You never knew what people were going to ask about or the degree of help they wanted. So that led us to think, well, if someone's actually doing this in the real world, they're going to need to have access to some sort of support infrastructure where. They're at home, they're doing this, they're going to have questions, yes. even if it's just reassuring, like, is that okay? Does that look, is that, did I insert <laughs> it correctly? Some people, that was stand, that was all they needed, yeah. but they still felt better having had that and having someone say, yep, that looks good. Um, and that was the extent oh, of wow. it. Wow, it's like so, installing IKEA furniture. It's like, am I putting the right screw in the right hole? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, you know, and, and that's a good point because IKEA furniture comes with, you know, Instruction instructions values, yeah. that you follow. Instructions we found were absolutely key to, to self-fitting success. So you need to have really good instructions, really understandable things. We had video illustrations of some of the more complex things like how to insert a hearing aid. And we found that people were quite successful from watching the video and things like that as compared to in the past, we'd use paper instruction booklets that just sort of described in words or used an image to illustrate that. And people found the videos were a lot more understandable. Or making sure the instructions, the text is actually um, pitched at the right literacy level. So it's we're not using jargon. We're not using really complicated sentence structure that's going to be you know, really difficult for, for people to understand. A lot of health material is presented at a level that is is above the average literacy level yes. of the population. And when you're talking about hearing aids, there's all sorts of scope for all this jargon, you know, microphones and receivers and, and Bluetooth and this and that. And <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, that's hard to get your head around if you're brand new to this sort of yeah. thing. So instructions, having someone to, you know, to, to provide in, you know, personalized support, those things are absolutely critical. So if we're thinking about building up a service delivery model that would support 
right, self-fitting hearing aids, those two things absolutely need to be part of the mix. I mean, any piece of technology has a help desk somewhere and you absolutely need to have that because, you know, what, what else can you, what else can you do? Or even having something, some sort of resource online. I know that if I have trouble with, say, Microsoft Word and I don't know how to do something, I'll Google it and someone somewhere <laughs> has posted something about how to do what I want to do or how to address the problem I've encountered. So that gets back to what you were saying earlier about building up some sort of resource, free resource that people can go to for troubleshooting. And some of the self-fitting hearing aid manufacturers have indeed done that. They've got a frequently asked questions. They've got some explanatory videos about, oh, how to clean your hearing aid or what happens if something stops working or what if you lose your Bluetooth connection, do this, that, and the other. And people can, can tap into that resource. So having all of those things um, I think that's those are things that are, are, are really going to support people. But we can't overlook, again, this psychosocial aspect that we have. We are in, you know, in, in danger of of losing that if we say, OK, we're going to reduce audiology to, you know, you buy your hearing aid online, self-fit it yourself and that's it. So having that, I think, is a really key thing of having um, a, a, a good service delivery model that supports these over the counter and self-fitting devices is that we need to have those sorts of services available. And again, this is where we can tap into e-health and m-health technologies. Why can't we leverage those to provide psychosocial support? Or, <coughs> excuse me, or linking that in with a hybrid sort of service. So you're fitting your own hearing aid, but maybe you're coming to see me for a half hour counseling session, you know, or half hour oral rehab session, or joining an oral rehabilitation group. So we're not focusing on the device. You've done that at home and it's all fine. You've set up your hearing aid the way you like it. Everything's working for you. Now you're coming in to do some in-person stuff about learning communication strategies. So having something that you do at home, giving the client you know, more empowerment to, to do things on their own, that, that doesn't preclude us from actually then sort of using our services as an adjunct and working together with the client. So I, I think there's so much scope for uh, lots of different ways that we can do this in a really productive wow. way. From what from what you're saying, I think the scope of audiology is going to definitely change a lot <laughs> over the next few yeah. years because that sounds like an entirely different industry and profession than what it's currently doing. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? And I think uh, one of the the first litmus tests we're going to have is next year in the U.S. when the Over the Counter Hearing Aid Act goes into effect. So the um, the idea that people are going to be people with mild to moderate hearing loss, adults with mild to moderate hearing loss are going to be legally able to purchase hearing aids, uh, not just personal sound amplification products or other things that yeah, are sort of classified as hearing aids. aids. Exactly. Actual hearing aids um, over the counter, wh whether that is at a chemist or, um, you know, at, at a regular retail shop or, or online, uh, somewhere other than an audiologist putting them. And that's going to become legal around this time next year. And it's going to be really exciting to see how does the landscape change and, and how do we as audiologists need to think about redefining our role? I mean, if we only see ourselves as people who fit hearing aids and that's it, that's the only skill we have in our armament, we're dead in the water. We really are because we're going to have people who think, well, I'm going to go fit myself and that wasn't too difficult. I don't need an audiologist. But I think we're more than that. 
Uh, we're so much more than that, or we can be. So I think there's so much scope for us to really get back to our roots in, in uh, as a rehabilitation-focused profession. That that was something that there was a lot of focus on back before we had digital hearing aids and we were all still using screwdrivers and potentiometers to adjust what hearing aids could do. We were very limited in, in things. We could change gain, maybe do a higher low cut, that's it. The rest of the time was devoted to rehab and counseling. We really need to bring that back in and position ourselves as people who are experts and specialists in this area because it is it is so important. I think that you really can't have a fully successful hearing aid user without all of those things supporting them in that endeavor. Hey podcast listeners, sorry for interrupting you halfway through this episode, but if you guys found anything valuable or useful or any nuggets of information which really stood out for you, please consider leaving a comment down below if you're on YouTube or shooting me a message on Facebook or LinkedIn if you're watching it over there and just let me know what really stood out for you in this episode. Now, I hope you guys enjoy the rest of the episode. From the way you talk and the way you talk about these topics, you're, I can see that you're really excited about where the industry is going um, with self-management and with self-fitting hearing aids. Um, before before we started the recording, um, we were talking about your involvement with um, uh, Pacific um, Pacific Islands program, yes, the Pacific mm-hmm. Islands program, and your work in the Aboriginal um, communities and stuff like that. Um, whose lives will self hearing aids start to change? Because I think you have a real passion for people and changing lives and changing hearing health. Um, how do you see this changing? Uh, how do you see self-inherence changing the lives of the less fortunate and people without access to direct um, audiology services and stuff like that? Mm, excellent question. And to be honest, I think that the answer to that lies in finding out what what the actual circumstances of these specific communities really are before thinking about what kinds of solutions can we can we suggest to them. So one of the things that's been very interesting about visiting Kiribati every year is identifying these older adults who have sensory neural hearing loss, very likely presbycusis or, or noise-induced hearing loss over a lifetime of noise exposure. So one of the interesting things is that as life expectancy improves in some of these countries, we're actually seeing more of that age-related hearing loss because people are living long enough to have age-related hearing <laughs> loss. So those unintended consequences of, of, of us becoming healthier and living longer, we have all those sort of chronic conditions that crop up due to aging. So we see that, and where we visit, the island of Tarawa, there's not, uh, there's not a hearing aid service. Uh, there is for, uh, for children that's sponsored by Hear the, the Hear the World Foundation, but there's nothing for adults. And when we go out there, we're part of an ear, nose, and throat team. So it's very medically focused. So it's mainly focused on identifying people who could benefit from uh, surgical intervention, medical intervention, right then and there while we're, while we're there. But of course, there's this group of, of people who don't have anything medically or surgically wrong with their ears. They just have age-related hearing loss. So what can what can we offer them? So it's been interesting talking to some of these people. Some of them will come in for a hearing test and they'll come in and they have a hearing aid. 
and generally it's pretty old and it doesn't look like any of the hearing aids we would typically fit nowadays. And when I asked them, oh, you know, where did you get that from? Uh, they they've received it through some sort of charity or things like that that's come previous years, given them hearing aids and that's it. And one of the most frequent answers I got was, well, it was from a charity, but it wasn't given to me. It was given to my uncle or it was given to my brother or to another family member. And there's a lot of this sort of communal sharing around of resources. So if someone is given a hearing aid, for example, and they think, oh, well, someone else in my family is also having trouble hearing, well, let's give that to them to share with them. Now, we know that um, hearing aids are made for the individual, okay? And that's, you know, that, that's, that's the way we approach things here. So we would be quite surprised if we had a clinic in, in Melbourne or Sydney where someone came in and said, oh, yeah, I've been wearing my brother's hearing aid or I've been wearing my wife's hearing aid and we just sort of pass them around. And we think, no, 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 that's, that's, that's not appropriate. Yeah, that's um, interesting you bring that up. I was talking with Caitlin Barr about it and she said, hearing aids are more like prosthesis. You can't like put a somebody else's leg on your leg. It's not going to fit. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But then on the other hand, we're now over there, we're working in a culture where people do share resources and treat things like this as communally owned, not like here where if I have a hearing aid, well, it's not going in anyone else's ear but mine. (laughs) (laughs) Or if I had a prosthetic leg, it's not going on anyone else's mine. So we need to think about, well, maybe our hearing aids, you know, custom fit hearing aids, are they actually even the most appropriate solution? So then you have to think about the type of climate you're in. I mean, where we go, it's pretty much right where the international dateline and the equator intersect. So super hot, super humid all year round. And it's a very, very tiny atoll. And, you know, there's, there's water on all sides. You know, there's a lot of risk to, um, you know, to, to water damage and corrosion of things like that. And then you've also got to think of the fact that, well, where are they going to get batteries from? Hearing aid batteries are pretty specialized things. You know, they don't sell them everywhere. And so you start to think, well, maybe hearing aids are not the most appropriate solution here. And you think, well, what what might fit the bill? And you might start thinking about something like a pocket talker where you've got the little headphones and the little box. You can use them. Anyone can use them because you just change the volume to suit you. If I took one and gave it to you, there's it would fit you as well as it would fit me. There's no infection risk because there's nothing going in the ear. They run on AA batteries. Everyone's got AA batteries, even there, uh, because other things take AA batteries. So places will stock them because you know, a, lot of, a lot of products actually use them. Um, they're really robust. I've actually dropped one and run over it with a chair, and it was fine. <laughs> they, are, they are indestructible. And, you know, they're a couple hundred dollars. Okay. They're not of it all so are they a so, bit like um sony walkman's that kind of device they look like a walkman <laughs> exactly exactly they do that's not a comparison i i, I typically draw with people because i'm afraid they'll think i'm oh what is a walkman what is a walkman Liz? cds what is that exactly cassette tapes shut up grandma yeah exactly so that's exactly right they look like a sony walkman and you think okay well maybe that would be a better solution and you start to think well would, we might see that here as, as not adequate. So if we went to an audiologist here, Melbourne, Sydney, and someone said, here's a pocket talker, we might think, well, that's not, a, that's not adjusted to me. That's not fitted to me. That's not meeting my individual needs. Um, you know, and 
we would want something we would want something different. So you've got to consider the context and you've got to consider what people's lives are actually like right now. So there's so many cases of people, you know, with the best of intentions going to developing countries, fitting them with expensive hearing aids or even entry level hearing aids that are expensive in the context of the developing country and retention of them is, is very poor. They can't be maintained. There's no one on the ground to maintain them. Um, again, you might have this culture where things are shared. There's nowhere necessarily for people to store them in a safe or dry environment. All sorts of things sort of working against that as being a good solution. So again, it takes us back to something I mentioned right at the beginning of our chat, this idea of design thinking, this idea of doing some discovery at the beginning to really just immerse yourself in the population of interest and find out, well, what problems do they have? What sorts of unexpected things do they do that I wouldn't have mm. expected to see? You know, because I know how life works in Sydney because I'm in it. <laughs> yeah. I'm marinating. Okay. Um, and I, so I, there's a lot of assumptions that I have about how people live their lives. I might think, well, I take the train to work and, you know, if I just have to walk down across campus here and, and the, there's always a metro every five minutes. And what are people talking about having trouble getting from A to B and you know, I take it for granted that we have this wonderful network of public transport, for example. Or if I need groceries, I can go to Woolies and they'll have exactly what I want. Um, all these sorts of things. And you start to think, well, should I really be assuming that everyone has the same sort of infrastructure in their lives, the same sorts of resources, or even viewing how they view those resources or relationships between people? Um, even things like uh, privacy, I, um, if I went to see my GP, for example, and let's say he decided to conduct the appointment in the waiting room in front of everybody, that would be just the biggest taboo in, yeah. in our culture. So, um, whereas, you know, I have been to places where they don't want to be alone with the practitioner. They want to be, they want to have other people around them. They want to sort of look at this as more of a collective thing rather than just having this one-on-one -on -one individual approach. So there's a lot of things that I think still need to be learned about what people's contexts actually are, what they really want, what the actual problems are, and not trying to impose solutions that we know would work for us or we think would work for us onto some other context. And that also gets into larger issues of disempowering people. I mean, these aren't people who are so passive that they have to just sort of sit there and wait for us to come and solve all their problems. I mean... You know, this is this is a fully functioning society. You know, they uh, imagine how we would feel if someone came into our neighborhood and said, OK, you know, I need to take you to the doctor and I need you to do this and you have to do this on my say so. And, you know, how how would that feel to us? We'd probably think, what are you doing? You know, what? how dare you tell me what to do? Let me decide. And particularly if it was somebody who came from a very different culture, might, they might say, oh, well, come to this appointment and we're going to, the doctor's going to see five of you at a time in a big group. We might think, well, that's not how, that's not a cultural norm for us. And we'd be very resistant to that as a solution uh, to any of our problems, because it's clear that the person imposing that solution hasn't really taken us into account. So there's lots of things to really think about um, when we're thinking about, you know, special populations or populations that are quite different to our own. Um, so thinking beyond just would self-fitting hearing aids be useful for this population, maybe starting back, you know, a couple of steps back and thinking, well, what, what sorts of problems and needs does this population have? 
and then later deciding, well, you know, what kinds of solutions can we start thinking about that might be able to be adapted to these specific needs. Yeah, because there's a so lot the- of cultural, <laughs> cultural nuances which you have to take into account, otherwise you're addressing issues yeah. which may not be that big of an issue to them or which they may approach in a different way. I think an amazing mm-hmm. um, example of this, maybe not so generally, but um, is the use of uh, bone conduction hearing aids in the Aboriginal communities, which are sewn into baseball caps and things like that. Like yeah. really addressing that kids really don't want big things on their heads and really catering it to their circumstances and their um, ways of life. Yeah, and that's a great that's a great example of of you know knowing what is appealing to people, what would you know help them to wear something that is ultimately going to help their communication, and their education, and yeah, traditional bone conduction hearing aids, they're huge, they're ugly, they hurt <laughs> after a while, they're not comfortable to wear, they're so they're so susceptible to being just flicked off the head, they've got the whole body aid component. I mean, they're just they're a disaster in so many ways. Um, and so having something innovative like that, I mean, that's where really where, where real true innovation comes from is by really intimately knowing and understanding the population you're trying to innovate for and making sure that you're not just thinking, dreaming up some idea in, in an office with the door <laughs> closed and going out going, I've got a solution. And it's interesting because also how people see problems, whether or not they see something as a problem. You may see it as a problem, but they may not see it as a problem at all. Yeah. Or they may say, well, my biggest problem is X, and meanwhile, you think it's Y. I mean, that's even defining the problem is something that you need to start with rather than saying, I can solve your problem because that presupposes that they have a problem. <laughs> you know what your problem is. And probably you don't. Or you might, you might know what some of the problems are, but which one do they think is the most pressing? So these are all things that, that need to be done. And I would say that needs to be done for any population, but that goes double, more than double, for a population that you really aren't very familiar with, mm. so that you are not a member of that population. I can have some pretty good ideas about what older adults in, in Sydney would be able to cope with. I mean, I'm not an older adult yet, but you know, we live in the same city, same cultural norms. You know, you sort of have a good sense of, okay, I pretty much can sort of almost guess some of the things I don't really need to investigate in detail. But when you're talking about a population, different country, different culture, um, you really, really need to have a deep understanding of that. So this is where I go all the way back to undergrad when I was also studying anthropology as well as linguistics. So this is like taking anthropological approach to hearing healthcare research. Wow. (laughs) You really have a full round from it all, all of it yeah yeah it, it's all relevant it all interconnects it's it's amazing awesome um it was amazing speaking with you today really loved your passion and your real drive to change the lives of people and truly do research not for the sake of doing research but truly to to see how you can improve the lives of patients and clients and people even abroad. I never thought of that many nuances about different cultures and how many different approaches they may have towards the same issue that we may take for granted. Um, That was absolutely amazing. Um, I would love if you can just also 
give a brief description of what you do with the Pacific Islands um, program and just how you guys help um, the communities over there? Sure. So the Pacific Islands program is an initiative that is sponsored by the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons. So what they do is they send out surgical teams to a number of developing countries in the Pacific. And I, of course, go with an ear, nose and throat team. So there's four of us that go for about a week every year. We're looking to increase to twice a year starting in 2020. And we spend a week um, on the island of Tarawa in the, a country called Kiribati. And the, um, the, the goal really is not just to provide diagnostic and surgical services, but also to really work closely with the local staff. So there are doctors and nurses and they have a hospital there on the island. And these people are, you know, they're already quite well trained. It's just that the hospital lacks specialist knowledge. So, for example, they don't have a full-time ENT or they don't have some of the other medical specialties. So we spend a lot of time, you know, we don't go there just to provide services and then let, let everyone just sort of stand there watching us do it and then we leave. There's a team that goes into it. So we, we try to keep the same team every year. So we develop a relationship with our um, what they call our, our in-country counterparts. And we, we do some skilling up and some building on the knowledge from previous visits every time we go. So, for example, the last time we were there, uh, which is in November of, November of last year, I spent quite a bit of time with some of the nurses. They had been specially trained already as, as ear nurses, so they had some special knowledge in ear and hearing. And they knew how to do basic hearing screening tests so we talked about, you know, doing full diagnostic tests. We talked about masking and they, they picked that up quite quickly, a lot more than, than I did <laughs> as a student. Masking is not an easy thing to sort of wrap your head around, but they were fantastic. Uh, and I brought some resources to, to leave with them to study. They were very motivated to learn. And when we were there last time, we actually opened up a, a permanent room in the hospital that was going to be the dedicated ENT clinic. So in our absence, they now have the, the skills to actually bring in patients and, and see them for basic issues. And then if there's anything quite complex, you know, we can we can address that when we return. So it's been a quite nice relationship. It's uh, I, that's why I continue to volunteer with the program because of that focus on education and that focus on, again, empowering the local staff to actually be able to serve their own people. And it's it's a fantastic experience. And it, it, again, it's one of those things where you work really hard, but it is so rewarding. Um, yeah, and it's it's just it's just fascinating. Anything that involves people, I really love, as you, as you alluded to. Um, it, it really helps I, to, to give some maybe final words of advice to everyone listening out there. It really helps if you're interested in a career in any sort of health research to be a giant sticky beak. I'm so, I'm so interested in everything that people are doing and constantly listening and watching and for what people are doing. And it, it all it's all relevant. It all ties in. You never know when a little nugget of information is going to be relevant for something down the track. So having that interest in, in people and what happens when you put two people in a room or more than two people in a room and how they interact and communicate, I mean, there's no way I'll ever get tired of that. 
it, it's just this endlessly fascinating thing. It really is. Um, it's, it's it will just, drive some people insane, but I think there's yeah, definitely that's, people that's, who love it like you. Yes, and I think that that's, that's important. And I was having a conversation with a colleague earlier today about uh, choosing audiology as a profession. Is that I think that on one hand, yes, you can learn the, the practical and the technical skills, and you can certainly even learn to be a good uh, active listener and a good counselor, but you absolutely have to have as the fundamental sort of base for everything is you have to be genuinely interested in other people. Yes. Um, absolutely have to have that and being able to just having those fundamental interaction skills with people. You can certainly build on those in your training and develop them, but I think you have to be genuinely interested in others to succeed in our fields, definitely. I um, was listening to a podcast this morning and Lewis Howes was saying um, the most interesting people are the most interested people. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. I completely agree with that. And and I, friends and colleagues who I think are the most interesting are the ones who are always seeking to understand other people and are interested in what they have to say and their contributions. So, and I strive to be that sort of person myself. Absolutely. Um, just to finish out, um, where can people find you online and where can people connect with you? Probably the best place is Twitter. So um, you can you can Google me and my that should pop up. Uh, yep. I also I'll add you to the description. Yeah, please please do. Twitter is the best place. Um, and make sure it's the Elizabeth Convery who identifies herself as an audiologist, <laughs> not the Elizabeth Convery in Pennsylvania who is a real estate agent. No relation, but the same name as me. She's also very active on social media, so easy to to find by mistake. But yeah, on Twitter is fine. Or people can email me. I always love to hear from people. Anybody who has any questions questions or wants to discuss anything hearing related yeah please just email me hit me up on twitter i'll be very happy to engage with anybody awesome thank you so much liz it was amazing speaking with you today oh, well, <laughs> really appreciate you. your time i don't often i don't often get you know an hour to sort of rattle on about myself thank you very much <laughs> <laughs> hope you enjoyed it as much as i did <laughs> i sure did mark thank you so much Hey podcast listeners, if you got all the way to the end, thank you so much. It means so much to me that you took out the time in your busy schedules to watch and consume content to educate yourself more on different areas of the audiology profession. I really appreciate it. If you guys really enjoyed it, please consider sharing it with all your friends and colleagues. That would mean the world to me. And hope you guys can also subscribe and like so that you can listen to next week's episode.